This is a show for missionary disciples who worship Christ in the Eucharist and serve him and their neighbor, for whom the words of the creed reverberate through their daily activity. This is a show for those like you and me who make the conscious choice to follow Christ outside the walls. Today, we're talking with Jason and Rachel Bullman about uh, vulnerability as a means of, of fostering relationships as a, a part of the process of evangelization. Deacon Jason was recently ordained in the Diocese of Orlando, and Rachel is a regular contributor to the Word on Fire blog, co-hosts a YouTube show with her husband, Meet the Bullmans, which is uh, where I first came across them. They've been married since 2008 and have the gift of seven children, including twins there at the end, just to make life extra spicy and interesting. Thank you both for being on the show here today. Thank you so much. <laughs> it's our pleasure. That was such a merciful, spicy, and interesting episode. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> well, you know, uh, we've got, we have our ninth child is on the way, and um, there's just a certain amount of of energy and chaos that comes as part of having a large family. And I can just yeah. imagine as um, as invigorating, we'll, we'll, we'll use that euphemism, yes. as invigorating as it is to have young children, uh, I can only imagine what it would be like to be trying to do that times two. I mean, it feels like that would be exponential and not just additive. I mean, we still walk in the room and go, wow, there's two of you Absolutely. all the time. So that'll probably be like that for the rest of their lives. Yeah. <laughs> it really is like a club, you know? Yeah. People would say, oh, you're in the twins club now. Like, yeah, we are. You know? Yeah. <laughs> now, are they... It. Are they fraternal or or do you have to put a mark on them to keep them apart? <laughs> They're fraternal, so and we're thankful for that because I don't I don't know. I don't think I could do it. My I actually have nieces that are twins and it's it doesn't run in the family because they're not blood because I'm adopted, but they're identical. And it's so difficult to tell them apart. I always mess with them, like, y'all need to get different hairstyles so right. that I know who you are. <laughs> now, Rachel, you grew up in the uh, assemblies of God. A tradition. I grew yeah. up in in a charismatic tradition, but also based on the holiness movement, which all of those kind of mm -hmm. came out of that same branch of Protestantism. And one of the things that I experienced in my upbringing, I'm going to assume that you did as well. There is a side of you that you put forward. There's a picture perfect image uh, that mm -hmm. you have out there. If you're going to invite someone over to the house, you're going to spend about uh, maybe two days panic cleaning and hiding everything so right. that you can have this image that's presented to the outside world of, of look, we, we follow Jesus. We have, we have it all together. Right. Um, I'm going to assume that that was your experience growing up. Oh, for sure. For sure. I don't think there was ever a moment that it wasn't like someone's coming to the house and there wasn't a bomb that went off like 72 hours before that so that everyone knew that we are now all, they're not even at the house yet, but we're going to be on perfect behavior right now and everything's cleaned up and all the right things are, are displayed and we're, we're ready to go. I bring that up because we finally hit the point in our marriage, my wife and I, where we realized our house is nine, nine kids. It's never going to be clean. So we have to choose between, are we going to live a life of hospitality or are we going to live a life that displays a perfect image? Because we can't have both. Amen. So Amen. what was the point for you where you came to this realization? What did it look like for you to transition from that, from that upbringing and that, that tradition little T that you grew up with transitioning sure. into this new way of life? Well, one of the things was that we used to have young adults come over here once a week, right before COVID. We had young adults that came over here 
um, every week for three years. So we're coming on Tuesday nights just to come and talk about the faith. And we never knew who was coming because it's young adults and they don't commit to anything. So it was like they're right. going to maybe there's four people that show up. But maybe there was one night when like 32 30 people yeah. showed up oh, to the house. Wow. And so there was just never really a plan. They didn't get to see the whole house because the kids were asleep. But, I mean, there were times that I'd have to get up and leave the room because someone starts crying or, like, there's a, a half-clothed a half child, like, standing on the other side of the glass door. <laughs> so there were all these moments like that that kind of called you to the carpet on what authenticity is really going to look like. But just recently, um, right after we had the twins, Mm-hmm. we Jason was going to get together with some of the guys from church. Do you remember this? And they were going to come over here to the house. Literally, we had just, I had just had the twins. They had just gotten home. Um, and so they had to have been maybe, I don't know, uh, four weeks old. And so, mm-hmm. so we're sitting here at the house and they're two weeks out of the NICU. We've got four or five guys coming over to the house, men that, that go to our parish and I look at Jason and I said, because they were going to, you guys were going to have like a heavy discussion or something. And I said, do you want me to keep the kids away from you guys outside? Uh, like, yes. do I keep them inside? Do you remember what you said? Uh, not really. You, actually. He, he looked at me and he said, because I'm sure that you could tell that I was overwhelmed thinking mm-hmm. about carrying two babies by myself and then trying to get the house in some sort of weird order. Mm-hmm. And he looked at me and he said, honey, people are going to have to decide whether or not they know when they come here how many kids we have. Mm-hmm. They know what kind of reality they're stepping into. So they either have to accept that as a reality and realize that our hospitality flows from that, or they're just going to be really uncomfortable the whole time that they're here. And mm-hmm. both of those things are okay with me. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, so you just have to be okay with it. And I was like, oh, okay, I got it. So uh, first of all, that's a brave move having them over, like right after the, the pregnancy, right? So, <laughs> One of the guys that came over, his wife was expecting, and I'm like walking through the house, and he goes, so this is it? Like, you're okay? I was like, I mean, yeah, I'm good. And he's like, he's like, I just thought that you'd be laying down for a really long time after that. I was like, no. Wouldn't like, that well, be nice, awesome. though? Yeah, I mean, that'd be great. <laughs> You're like in a hospital bed. Right. Everything's great. (laughs) So to this group again, you're, you're bringing, you have this group of hospitality, but also this group of community. Uh, Is this a standing group that you've had for a while? Or is this something that you were cultivating at that time? At that point, um, after the babies, I think right before that, at, at right when everything shut down with COVID, we had stopped that, the large group that was coming to the house. And then, but even from from them, they would come over sometimes during the day. And a lot of those those young adults have now gone on to their various vocations, gotten married, gone, gone to seminary, starting religious life. And it's really interesting because they all look back at those three years as being really formative years in their life. Mm-hmm. And they don't, I mean, we had great conversations, but I really think they say that the, the basis of it was the feeling of being loved here. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Um, it, you know, just to speak on vulnerability, which obviously having people over to your house makes it, it, there's got to be a sense of vulnerability there. Um, but without vulnerability, there's really no love. And um, I think that young people lack a lot of hope uh, out of all the virtues because 
Um, they don't see a lot of authentic love, especially amongst their peers and young people, young young families, um, young married couples. So what we offered them was sort of um, it was sort of an affront to putting up a facade. You know, it was very open and vulnerable. Kids are crying sometimes. They'll come and interrupt things. Um, but the power of just loving each other well in front of them, loving our kids well, and then being able and having this capacity to speak about the depths of uh, faith and love and hope and, and kind of incarnating those things uh, in our own lives and sharing our experiences was pretty profound. And I think that's why it spread kind of like wildfire around our area because I think young adults were just looking, number one, for something solid to, you know, um, to help them grow in their faith. Um, and then just the example, I think, that we shared in opening up our home like that was, it was awesome. I'm intrigued by this kind of vulnerability because it, it's, there's a balance to it that I haven't quite maybe pinned down. Um, because we've all seen what it looks like when someone comes onto social media or comes into a public sphere and overshares. Uh, and it might be a little bit uncomfortable. There's just, there's a certain sense of unease that comes along with someone oversharing. And there is a, there is on the flip side, a deep attraction to someone who is uh, openly vulnerable because of what you're talking about. This, this um, example of love that comes through that vulnerability. So for someone who is, maybe considering how do I live a life maybe a little bit more hospitable, whether that be with within my own family or whether that be inviting people from my parish community or even broader than that. How do you walk the line between vulnerability and oversharing, which to, to, to bring that place of, of invitation rather than uh, creating a, a place of uncomfortability? Mm. Um, so, um, the first thing that comes to my mind, I would say, is um, I think it begins with your identity. Um, you know, I think you have confidence in being vulnerable in front of other people if you are confident that you are beloved. Um, you know, it's through your encounter with an unconditional love like Christ um, that only he can offer, that only God can offer us, and sort of having a newfound identity within, within that love mm. gives you then the confidence to be vulnerable to other people because you recognize a particular truth, and that truth is um, that you have an innate dignity that you don't have to earn, you know, that you don't have to uh, you don't have to hide, um, you know, something from other people because you don't feel compelled to earn your way and earn your respect um, from other people. Sure. I think people that overshare maybe um, haven't got that sense of identity quite yet. And right. so they're looking to for someone else to justify them. So they figure if I spill all of my 
you know, um, self out there, maybe they'll affirm me. Um, there's right. a difference there. I think it's subtle. Oh my gosh. Um, is that, does that ring true or? Yeah. And I think that the, um, like I'm sure that most people that are around our age are very thankful that social media didn't exist. Like when <laughs> we were in high school or in our early college years, right? Oh, cause, Lord, yes. cause I definitely would have been an overshare, <laughs> but I think that it does, it has to be tempered by a spiritual maturity and an established relationship. And so what happens then is that if you do become assured of your belovedness, then you're able to then recognize your intention behind what you're sharing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times, of course, I want to get on there and rant about the mom that cut me off in Carline, right? Or I want to jump on there and say something about the person or sitting in front of me that chatted way too much during the homily today. But what's my intention behind sharing that? Mm -hmm. Is my intention actually to help build up the kingdom of God? Or in some way, am I tearing someone else down? Am I going to be remembered by the fact that I only breathe death over the world? Or am I going to be remembered by the fact that I always tried to bring life or to point people towards Christ? And, and I think that that's really where the line is really drawn, behind your intention and behind your spiritual maturity. One of the best lessons in vulnerability, I think, is, is that moment after the resurrection when Christ invites St. Thomas into his wounds, like to touch his wounds. But we often look at that as like such great vulnerability, but it was also vulnerability that was established in a relationship that had already been received as communion. He was also invited into that moment. And so often social media gives us this false sense of communion that really can only be tempered and recognized through that understanding of who you are as a beloved child of God. And then being able to have the spiritual maturity to really look at your intention behind every single comment, every single post. It sounds really tedious, but the truth is, is that if you do continue to do the hard work of the spiritual life, it won't become so tedious. You'll hopefully rein in all the things that you know that you shouldn't say out loud and then know what you should be posting and what the line looks like between oversharing and between being authentically vulnerable. Well, and I think that within that, not only online, but but in person, um, mm. there is this necessity to say, why am I after this community? What is the purpose of, of me um, putting anything out there? I think that so often we just, we let our emotions carry us and we don't take the time mm -hmm. to look at what's the benefit of this, not only what what I think is going to make me feel good, but what's the benefit of this to the kingdom and to the, the common good as well? Right. You know, the first night that we had all of the young adults come to the house, it was kind of a, it was just a strange set of circumstances. We had left young adult ministry just because we were rearing children and building our own family life. And then kind of saw this opportunity that there were some young people that really needed that real authentic time together time that wasn't constrained by any other parameter other than just finding christ mm -hmm. and so i came to jason and i said hey why don't we why don't we let some people come over to the house and he's like okay so we just sent a couple of text messages and the first night like 15 15 young adults came to the house 
many of them we had never even met before. And what was really beautiful was that we just said, you know, why did you come here tonight? That was all that the first night was about. Why did you come? And I mean, probably every single person in that room started crying when they started answering the question. Mm -hmm. And um, it was just such a unique, organic, beautiful movement of the Holy Spirit that happened that night to see all of these, these young people that maybe didn't know each other, definitely didn't know us as well, come in there and just kind of pour out their hearts. Um, but it was something that you knew that you couldn't walk down with anybody and do that. Like you're not going to just walk outside of the house and find a group of people and, and cry (laughs) authentically with them. And so it has, I, I think that, that, that basis of authenticity when you're sharing, especially within evangelization, it becomes a a reciprocal thing. You can't give of something that someone's not asking for. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we see sometimes in evangelization that's not authentic is like when someone's trying to share the gospel with someone and the other person doesn't, they're not open to that. They don't want to hear it. So Mm -hmm. they're definitely not going to, it's going to fall on deaf ears. And when someone is begging you to tell them, but you're just not in the place to be able to share authentically with them, and so maybe the gospel has become some sort of rote uh, approach for you. Mm-hmm. And so it just it's really something that you just have to be ready for, prayed up for, if you will, and, and just predispose to have that space, that ontological space for people to exist. Pope Paul VI and the Evangelion and Tiandi, I think number 41, uh, he talks about, and that's the famous quote that, that many people have heard, that the world listens more to... To, listen, to, to witnesses than it does to teachers. And if it does listen to teachers, it does so because they are first witnesses. And like you said, I think that so often we think of evangelization as I'm going to communicate with you uh, information that I have learned somewhere. And we treat evangelization as if it's catechesis, whereas is what I hear you saying is that evangelization is most fruitful when it is a sharing of oneself uh, and and one's experience. So I'm not now. I'm not giving you something that you don't want. I'm entering into relationship with you, and I'm sharing something of my own encounter with life, encounter with uh, the presence of God that I'm not foisting on you. I'm sharing myself. Right. I think you experience that a lot at work. Yeah. I mean, in all aspects of life, I think you, and especially ministry, because. People sense, like uh, to sort of back up what you were just saying, people sense when there is a distance between you and what you're speaking about. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when, when the gospel is an idea that you just know a lot about, you know, people aren't impressed with the, the, the breadth of things you know. They might be at first, right? Maybe at first. <laughs> but even then, it only confounds, I think, people because I've never had success when I'm in a place where, I, you know, I'm not embracing with authentic faith and love Christ and the teachings of the church, and I'm just sort of, um, you know, spouting off some kind of Theology, you know, it, it never, it's never a home run. It never, it never works. I've failed that way many times. Um, it, it comes when you are in love with the person, you know, that you're speaking about. When it flows from that place of of deep love and, and devotion, of course, which presumes that you have a, a good interior life, a good right. prayer life. Um, that you have made Christ a priority, 
that you could then speak from a personal encounter because evangelization really is a personal personal thing person to person um it's uh if you want someone to love something that you love then you have to love it <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know it sounds uh, so simple <laughs> yeah so um so that that um it, it does sound so simple but it it, it really is like a, a little nugget of wisdom i think when it comes to hosting people or trying to evangelize is there is this temptation to put on a good face but ipso facto when you do that you have forgotten probably the most fundamental truth that will allow you to effectively evangelize which is that god loves you for who you are um you know he has come into the world into brokenness you know right. you're not you're not called to be perfect in in the way that the world imagines perfection uh like a flawlessness but but perfect in your submissio your 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 uh you know being having christ be the center and, and be on on track with his salvific mission and uh so there's a big difference there and it's a lesson we have to learn i think over and over again because there's always that temptation to to put a front up right um, well and wherever there is vulnerability there is uh, the chance of getting hurt and there is the chance of failure. And that's something right. that in our, in our own self left to our own devices, we would rather avoid. Um, and so that place of getting to, getting to where you are willing to be, um, to be vulnerable, willing to, to possibly fail and willing to possibly be embarrassed is a, maybe a high bar to get to. Right. Yeah. You know what comes to mind, actually, because um, I've been studying some of the virtues lately, is the virtue of magnanimity, mm -hmm. which, if you're going to sum it up, it's just high mindedness. And Thomas Aquinas says that it's not contrary to or opposed to humility. Um, being high minded is not a bad thing. In fact, it, true high mindedness means that you're focused on God and, and things that are beautiful and true and good. And so if you really are, you know, infused with this virtue, then the idea of the esteem of other people, the esteem of man, the, you know, the, those are actually lower things. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. So you, you've fallen short of high mindedness whenever you condescend to want to desire honor or you know uh, all the worldly goods so i think that you know having humility in the sense of my um, relationship with god i always recognize that i'm a contingent being i i depend on god for my very existence and therefore you know uh, i am humble um, but i also am magnanimous in that i want i want to achieve you know, sainthood. Mm -hmm. And so if I make myself vulnerable and people want to dismiss me, uh, dismiss what I say, if I make a fool out of myself, well, the truly magnanimous man is going to be like, well, oh, well, I mean, you know, I'm doing this for the grace of God. I have my mindset. I don't have time for that kind of <laughs> lowliness, you know, that, that kind of lowliness. It's like a, 
uh, you know, it's just a bad conclusion on our part. So it was, that was kind of revolutionary to me lately. I don't know if that rings a bell or, uh, you know, well, and I think that, you. that it's a, maybe important for us to recognize that whether we succeed or we fail, God is the one doing the action, right? If there's a success, it's because right. the Holy Spirit was present there and making that success possible. And yes, we cooperated and we were obedient in that, but ultimately it's not our success. And in the same way, it's not our failure. If we're going out and we are being vulnerable and sharing of ourselves and sharing of our our, our love for Christ— and someone else rejects that, uh, there's not something that we could have done necessarily better, although it's not never a bad idea to do some self-reflection and say, did I get in the way? Right. But, but if God's the one doing the action, then there, there's a lot less stress involved with that. Um, what? Who cares if if my house is a little bit messy? Look at all of these kids, right? Uh, they're the ones. They're the ones doing the action. It's not my fault. Right? So so too, so too. God's the one doing the action in our vulnerability and in those uh, communal relationships, and giving Him the space to do that without feeling offended or nervous, right? On His behalf. Yeah, it's so true. I it, that all made me think of um. Another moment, you know, right after the twins were born and they were first home, uh, you know, everybody wants to bring you food. Like everybody wants to come over and they want they want to love on you with food. But I remember feeling such a weird nervousness, like, oh, my gosh. So all these people are going to come over and I'm going to have to figure out how to look put together when I just had twins, you know, tear and yeah. torn from my body. You know, like, how are we going to do this? And uh, we were also just doing a bunch of random things at the house. And we had just had a bunch of major renovation stuff in our backyard. And, yeah, and I remember the greatest timing the greatest for all time. that, was it? <laughs> but I remember this one particular family had come over and we did, we weren't, I didn't know them very well. Their son goes to school with one of our sons. And so like, were we really going to come by and visit and, and drop off the food? And I'm thinking, okay, you're going to just drop off food. So they came in and I had like trash bags of stuff by the front door that we were trying to take out to the trash. It's like empty cardboard boxes, half broken down. I mean, you had to like wade through mm-hmm. all the stuff in the house. And they came in to drop off the food and we visited for a little while and she was great. I was so apologetic. And she was just like, Rachel, please stop apologizing for all of this. Like, we're just happy to be able to be here. And no one, they didn't look twice at anything. The kids all felt free. Mm -hmm. And I remember at one moment looking around at everyone with smiles on their faces and people holding babies. And I was like, what is all of this in the light of eternity? It doesn't matter. This doesn't matter. (laughs) We're talking today with Deacon Jason and Rachel Bullman. You can find out more of their work over at rachelbullman.com. There you can find the episodes of the Meet the Bullman show on YouTube from Word on Fire and much more. Don't go anywhere because we're going to continue this conversation right after the break, but do join the ongoing conversation on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. There's much more to come right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls with TL.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls as we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Jason and Rachel Woolman. Deacon Jason was recently ordained for the Diocese of Orlando, and Rachel is a regular contributor to the Word on Fire blog, co-hosts the YouTube show Meet the Bullmans, and has a couple of books coming out. Uh, what are those books and where can we find them? Sure. So the first book will be coming out here at the beginning of September. It's called With All Her Mind. And it's actually, I was I was the editor for the volume, and it's coming out with Word on Fire. It's a group of essays inviting women into the intellectual life. Uh, really kind of all the books out there right now for women are all about like the feminine genius. There's a lot of talk on gender, but the feminine genius thing has really cut and got a pigeon, pigeonholed, I think, into right. very emotional conversations. And in order for us to be well-balanced and whole persons, we also need to talk about the intellectual life. And so I was really excited to put together this amazing list of women to put these essays out into the world and hopefully provide some pragmatic insight into their own lives and how the intellectual life has been formative for them. And then the other book will come out in the spring. That's with our Sunday visitor. And they just told me what the official title is, and it's going to be called Becoming Wife, uh, Saying Yes to More Than the Dress. And so that's really going to be a theological and philosophical reflection on marriage. So with that in mind, I, I'm really intrigued by both of these topics. Um, I want to talk about, and we'll, we're going to get back to our conversation on evangelization and vulnerability, but I think that this is important of uh, hearing a multitude of voices. We are a universal church. We have um, mm -hmm. people throughout history and through, uh, throughout geographic regions who are all contributing to our faith. Right. You look at the patristics and there's so much uh, breadth uh, geographically represented. Um, but let's talk about representation uh, because so often when all of the voices that we hear are coming from a single perspective or from a similar perspective, it limits our, our understanding of of the multivalent truths of our faith, right? Um, right? Of the universal nature of our faith. And so when all that we hear is uh, European Catholicism, right? Uh, when most of the books that are out there uh, are, are from a handful of publishers, which are fantastic publishers, but they're largely publishing from a, a specific perspective, we miss out on, on some aspect. Uh, when, it, when it's all white men, right. we miss out on something important to our faith. We need moral theologians who are uh, Asian and African in descent. We need uh, people speaking to biblical studies and theology that are coming from uh, from different perspectives and different gender. Uh, right. How? Well, let, let's talk about one, the, this first book, the sure. inviting women into the intellectual life, um, because I think that we have to open the door and and support that and and consume those materials in order to make that possible. Like right now, right. all we have is one perspective because that's what everyone's buying. Right, and you're so true. It's so true. I mean, we were hungry for it, and it really comes down to trying to beat this man-made algorithm that we've all kind of created. Yeah, like we're all snatching up all those those books that have that feminine genius in the title. And the truth is, is that, I mean, that was coined by, by someone fantastic and wonderful, St. John Paul II, wonderful. But 
there was a depth and a breadth to the way that he spoke about it. And we're kind of missing a bit, a large, large parts of it. And so it's just so important that the things that you want to discover about the things that you feel like you're lacking in your own conversation about yourself, in your own prayer life, and you feel like you're, you're, you're not as multifaceted as, as the human person should be, go out and find it. Someone is talking about it. You know, of course, temper those with the correct discernment and know what you're taking in. But at the same time, it's so, so important. And I really think that this book is going to be the beginning of a conversation. You know, I think there might be some people that when they pick it up, they're like, oh, well, Rachel, I've been thinking for a long time. <laughs> yes, yes, you have. But we also want to invite these younger generations into this life and to, to knowing that you're, the, the female mind is valuable. And like yeah. you said, we need those kind of minds to be tempered. We need every mind to be tempered so that when the voices are in a room, they don't all sound the same. I was at a conference recently and heard a talk given by a young African sister uh, who is getting her uh, doctorate. I don't recall well where, but getting her doctorate in biblical studies. And she talked about, uh, she I think from Nigeria, uh, but if I'm wrong, I apologize, sister. Uh, but she was talking about <laughs> Paul's letters and the use of uh, what she said is coded language uh, from the perspective of someone who lived in occupied territory. So speaking in Romans mm -hmm. six about the slavery to sin and using that language to speak of sin as being the, the foreign oppressor who's coming in from externally. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and just that little small shift in perspective of looking uh, at a kind of a colonization of sin opened up maybe a, a nuance that I had never considered before. And so having those voices out there who have a different experience than I do to help me understand the depths of, of our tradition and of our scripture that was also written from a perspective that, that I don't share. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, what, one of the things that we, it's been a huge conversation, even just in our own home, because we come from different, different kind of upbringings, you know, me growing up just in religion, me growing up evangelical, him growing up Catholic we grew up, I think, in different income brackets. We grew up with different color skin. So there's all of these things that have come together to create such an authentic way of understanding each other and then given us a better way to understand other people. And, and we were able to temper whatever, I think, misconceptions that we might have. And it's been, I think, one of the best gifts of our, our marriage in that way. But, you know, a lot of times we just don't, we don't have the we lack the capacity to really listen to one another. And a big part of that is going to be to form our intellectual lives. You know, the, the reason why we even called it an invitation to the intellectual life was because there was a, a Dominican who wrote a book called The Intellectual Life, Sir Talangis. And it's so popular. It's a fantastic book. But it was also written in a time when women shopped and they just talked your ear off when you came home from work. He literally says that in the book. <laughs> Beatrice shops and then she talks to you when you need a distraction from your study or something like that. And I remember reading and thinking, wow, we really need to, we need to kind of modernize this and kind of bring it to the reality of today that women can think too. And the problem is, is that widely in our society right now, we like to feel and we don't want it to be tempered by what, by rational thought. And so 
the invitation into that is not just for women. It's for all of us because we see it on both sides of the sexes right now yeah. where we are shouting into the abyss and there's no rational thought to be had. <laughs> and this brings us right back to the question of vulnerability. We don't listen to one mm. another because maybe maybe we have a specific picture of of the good, the true, the beautiful that is narrower than it actually is. And we have to be willing to uh, to consider the breadth uh, that stretches our boundaries, but that might mean that we might misstep, right? Theological speculation sometimes gets corrected. And, and so there's maybe some concern about vulnerability from that side as well. Uh, how do you recommend someone pursuing the intellectual life pushing those boundaries in vulnerability uh, that that's open to, to failure. Hmm. Yeah, that's a, uh, that's a fantastic question. Um, I think very relevant to our time too in the church. Um, like maybe on the highest level where my f- mind first goes is von Balthasar's whole, um, dichotomy that he brings up of whether you live in uh, the ego drama or the theo drama. You know, I I think that um, this idea of sort of escaping yourself and keeping your eye focused on on Christ, you start to see um, the beauty, the truth in other people's perspectives that you know only they as other could provide and you you couldn't and and so your your eyes get opened a little bit more because you have you have sort of transcended yourself and allowed others encounter with the lord to inform your own Um, so i think operating from that that perspective is is key if we and, and honestly, if you, if you operate under only what you have defined in this small little box, um, you've cut yourself off, I think, from, from uh, growth uh, in your own personal spiritual life, but then in your intellectual life as well. Um, because the truth is ultimately not you know something it's a somebody and you know he is infinite and so it, you know the moment that you think that you've grasped god you can be sure you have not right. um so if if you keep that in mind uh then you necessarily have to be open to truth and see sort of those seeds of the world uh, of the word throughout all things and and that's what makes life beautiful is when you recognize Christ is found in all things and um, you don't have to be worried um, uh, I I don't think that you operate under a hermeneutic of fear when you when your eyes are when you're in love with the Lord you begin to sort of see truth in in so many different things and so many different perspectives um, I don't know if that was too lofty of, of, a, of a way to say things. Kind of I think it's good. Let, well, other- we'll, we'll bring it down just a little bit, but I think that it's a good start. Um, I think that one of the ways that we maybe ensure some safety even in that is that we gather around ourselves or we submit ourselves to a larger community. 
Uh, you were, earlier we were mm-hmm. talking about the kind of man-made algorithm that we've all submitted ourselves to, which does a fantastic job of separating us all into our individual camps. And it's when wow. we rub shoulders with people who think differently than us, even if it's just a, a nuanced difference, um, that in I think it's this, the Proverbs that say, in a multitude of counselors, there is safety. And as we're having these conversations with with people who uh, might lean more towards a, a Franciscan kind of thought process, or uh, and on the other side we've got our Dominicans, and then yeah, we'll even we're even going to let the Jesuits come to the table. And then uh, as we as we live in that tension, I think that we find um, maybe a self correcting community. Oh yeah, yeah, that's so good, and that scripture too. You know, a multitude of counselors. Someone can't counsel if you're not willing to be counseled. Right. And the other thing that I kept coming to mind as Jason was explaining, and, and then you two now talking about this multitude of counselors, is uh, Dr. Colosi from Regina College. Shout out, Dr. Colosi. He told me one time in a philosophy seminar, he said one of the things that he always tells all of his students is that in order to be a good philosopher, you have to practice everything with charity and clarity. And he said that the way that he would discuss that in class is that if you're going to have a discussion, a debate about something, you have to use both of those things. You have to listen to them with charity. And before you can respond, you have to repeat back to them what you think you heard so that you also have clarity. And then only with both of those things can you then fully reply. But the truth is, is that we don't do either one of those things anymore. Right. You know, we don't listen charitably. We're already trying to think of the next thing that we want to say. We don't listen with clarity because we don't care what they're trying to say. We only care about what we heard, which often is not what they meant to say. Well, we find that little that little trigger. And as soon as I hear that trigger word, I can put you in a box. And then I've got to, I can pull off my argument off the shelf because I've practiced against that box. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have to look at you as a person or look at your argument as an argument. I can just stereotype and then pull off my prepared uh, talking points, right? And that, <laughs> that, that, and you, you mentioned that we ought to do that, or your professor said that we ought to do that anytime that we are uh, working in philosophy. But I would counter, I counter that, uh, to, yeah. quote, mm-hmm. to quote Aquinas, <laughs> uh, that, that really we ought to do that in marriage as well, right? Yeah. Uh, that, Anytime we have a disagreement, <laughs> anytime there's a disagreement, pull that off. The, listen with with uh, clarity and charity, and, and yeah. let that be the center of our speech. Uh, we've been talking today with Deacon Jason and Rachel Bullman. Find out more of their work over at rachelbullman.com. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much. It's been a joy. Oh, yeah, this was awesome. If you missed any part of my conversation with Jason and Rachel Bullman, or maybe you want to go back and listen to something again, or even share it with your friends on social media, have no fear. All of our episodes are archived over at outsidethewalls.com. There you can listen to it as many times as you want. Find the shareable link there as well. And there is more content each and every week. There's content that doesn't make it here to the broadcast that we make available in an extra segment to all of those who support the show through Patreon. Our Patreon support community helps keep us on the air. uh, And in gratitude, we like to give them a couple of extra questions with a guest and a deeper dive into the topic. But 
if you uh, if you want to go back and catch some of those older extra segments, we do make them available after about six months, and you can go and listen. Maybe you remember a, an episode from back there that you want to get deeper into, and you really like that guest. Well, those older extra segments are available there at OutsideTheWalls.com. Click that Patreon link there at the top. If you want to get those segments as they come out, consider becoming a part of that Patreon support community. Now, let's go ahead and turn our attention to our readings from Scripture and from church history. That's the sound of the Verbum Library launching up. Verbum helps you read Scripture in light of church teaching, putting the magisterium at your fingertips by linking Scripture to the fathers and doctors of the church, the catechism, biblical commentaries, original language research, and so much more. Find out which Verbum package is right for you at Verbum.com. Our reading from Scripture today comes from the Gospel of Luke. And here, as we've been talking about hospitality and vulnerability and even talking about the the Bowman's practice of sharing a meal with those in their community, we're going to hear this story that Jesus tells at a meal about a meal. So here out of the Gospel of Luke, we hear, On a Sabbath, Jesus went to dine at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people there were observing him carefully. He told a parable to those who had been invited, noticing how they were choosing the places of honor at the table. When you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not recline at table in the place of honor. A more distinguished guest than you may have been invited by him, and the host who has invited both of you may approach you and say, Give your place to this man, and then you would proceed with embarrassment to take the lowest place. Rather, when you are invited, go and take the lowest place, so that when the host comes to you, he may say, My friend, move up to a higher position. Then you will enjoy the esteem of your companions at the table. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he said to the host who invited him, When you hold a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your close relatives or your wealthy neighbors in case they may invite you back and you have repayment. Rather, when you hold a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Blessed indeed will you be because of their inability to repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That reading comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14. And I want to stay on this concept of vulnerability. And in order for vulnerability to be possible, uh, we have to know two things. Whose opinion matters? And we have to know who gets to determine success or failure. And so here in this gospel passage, we see whose opinion matters, right? We see all of these people who are jockeying for the place of honor. And really the only opinion that matters is the opinion of the one who invited them. He is the only one who gets to determine the seating order. So all of their best efforts to estimate their own value, all of that is arbitrary, and it's based only on their own kind of perception of the world. But Jesus takes them to task and says, really, you ought to go to the lowest spot. 
Uh, that way, you don't have to guess, right? Just go to the lowest spot and let that host bring you to the proper place. And for us, as we look and we try to kind of gather our value, and we tend to pick our value based on the things that that make sense to us. So, you know, how well we do in our jobs or what kinds of volunteer work we do at the church, or maybe how well we uh, know the tenets of the faith or know the scriptures. And we can look at these criteria and say, well, this is about where I fall in the hierarchy of where I should be sitting at this, <laughs> at this celestial potluck, as it were. Uh, and and Jesus doesn't judge us in the same ways that we judge ourselves. His criteria are not our criteria. His criteria, and we saw this, I think, in the reading we did last week at the end of the show, is did he know us, right? Um, many will come and say, Lord, you, we, you, we know who you were. You were in our streets all the time. And he says, I didn't know where you came from. And so for us, we take that lowest place and we say, oof, I, I continue to see my own weaknesses and my own failures and not in a way to beat myself up, but just in a way to say, you know, I don't want to put myself way up on that list. And then Christ comes to us because whoever humbles himself, Christ says, will be, uh, will be exalted. But whoever exalts himself and thinks more highly of himself than he ought, that person will be humbled. And so that's the first part. In order for us to be vulnerable, we have to know whose opinion matters. Because if we're worried about everyone else's opinion, it's going, we're going to put on a show. We're going to have some kind of a barrier between us and them. And then the second part of that is to know whose action matters. Uh, this is evidenced in that second part where Jesus is talking to the host. Don't invite these other people who could pay you back, but invite those who can't pay you back, right? Uh, Christ is the action that matters. And so as I go out and I uh, invite the marginalized, I invite the people who are on the edges, who can't pay me back, who can't pay, uh, they're never going to be worthy in our own eyes to be in that place. But we invite them in and we give them that honor because Christ is the action that matters. And so he's the one who gets to decide what's success and what's failure. And for him, that success is for us to just go out and invite all the Frenches, right? Every little bit of it that we can find. So now let's turn our attention to our reading from church history. This comes from a homily on Matthew by St. John Chrysostom, and it comes kind of on the tail end of that same uh, idea of inviting the least of these, uh, knowing that they can't repay us. And and he's talking to the people uh, to, uh, of his community, and he says, Do you want to honor Christ's body? Then do not scorn him in his nakedness, nor honor him here in the church with silken garments while neglecting him outside where he is cold and naked. For he who said, This is my body, and made it so by his words, also said, You saw me hungry and did not feed me. And inasmuch as you did not do it for one of these, the least of my brothers, you did not do it for me. What we do here in the church requires a pure heart, not special garments. What we do outside requires great dedication. Let us learn, therefore, to be men of wisdom and to honor Christ as he desires. 
For a person being honored finds greatest pleasure in the honor he desires, not the honor we think best. Peter thought he was honoring Christ when he refused to let him wash his feet. But what Peter wanted was not truly an honor, quite the opposite. Give him the honor prescribed in his law by giving him your riches to the poor. For God does not want golden vessels, but golden hearts. Now, in saying this, I'm not forbidding you to make such gifts. I'm only demanding that along with such gifts and before them, you give alms. He accepts the former, but he is much more pleased with the latter. In the former, only the giver profits, and the latter, the recipient, does too. A gift to the church may be taken as a form of ostentation, but alms is pure kindness. Of what use is it to weigh down Christ's table with golden cups when he himself is dying of hunger? First, fill him when he is hungry. Then use the means you have left to adorn his table. Will you have a golden cup made, but not give a cup of water? What is the use of providing the table with cloths woven of gold thread and not providing Christ himself with the clothes he needs? What profit is there in that? Tell me, if you were to see him lacking the necessary food, but were to leave him in that state and merely surround his table with gold, would he be grateful to you, or rather would he not be angry? What if you were to see him clad in worn-out rags and stiff from the cold, and were to forget about clothing him, and instead were to set up golden columns for him, saying that you were doing it in his honor? Would he not think he was being mocked and greatly insulted? Apply this also to Christ when he comes along the roads as a pilgrim looking for shelter. You do not take him in as your guest, but you decorate the floor and walls and the capitals of the pillars. You provide silver chains for the lamps, but you cannot bear even to look at him as he lies chained in prison. Once again, I am not forbidding you to supply these adornments. I am urging you to provide these other things as well, and indeed to provide them first. No one has ever been accused of not providing ornaments, but for those who neglected their neighbor, a hell awaits with an inextinguishable fire and torment in the company of the demons. Do not therefore adorn the church and ignore your afflicted brother, for he is the most precious temple of all. That reading comes from a homily on Matthew by St. John Chrysostom. And here, just to point out one quick thing, the dignity of the human person, Christ in our neighbor, is the most important of all. Christ in our neighbor, who maybe is on the street, but also sometimes the one who's sitting next to us in the pew, who we haven't taken the time to get to know, who we haven't engaged in community. Christ is waiting for us to invite him in in vulnerability and hospitality in such a way that Christ will be honored in our lips and through our actions. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today's show is brought to you by Michael and Julie Highland and all of those who support the show through Patreon. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link to learn more. And until next week, May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.